I'm Arthur Snell. A major war is taking place on the European continent with Russia's invasion of Ukraine, bringing you a series of special episodes to help you understand the crisis as it unfolds. This is Doomsday Watch. Welcome back to Doomsday Watch. We hope you're finding these war bulletins valuable. A quick reminder that you can support our work on the crowdfunding app Patreon from as little as £3 per month. Just search Patreon Doomsday Watch or follow the link in the show notes. Hello, I'm joined today by Dr Ulrika Franke, who's a senior policy fellow at the European Council on Foreign Relations and an expert on European defence, particularly the issue of drones. Ulrika, welcome. Well, thanks a lot for having me. Uh, Ulrika, there's so much we could talk about today, but we are recording this the day after NATO's summit in Madrid came to a close. And whilst it's always tempting to say that NATO summits are historic and important, I think this one really is. What, what's your sense on uh, what, what were the really key moments and the key decisions of that summit? Hmm. Yeah, I think you're right um, that it was a historic summit. And actually, I mean, over the last few years, I mean, especially before 2014, but even afterwards, is oftentimes these summits were mainly about, you know, just coming together and showing unity and then talking about things, but but they weren't necessarily um, that important as this one was uh, this yeah. time. I think there are three things I would I would highlight. I mean, first of all, it really was about showing and demonstrating unity is sending a strong signal uh, into the world and, of course, primarily towards uh, Vladimir Putin, that NATO is strong, united, everyone is on the same page. And I think that's that's definitely what happened. Yeah. The second thing I would uh, emphasize or I would kind of point out as being important w- was this decision to take on two new members, Sweden and Finland, two European countries that you know have a long history of being non-aligned or if, if not even neutral and mm-hmm. that are now going to join NATO as 31st and 32nd uh, member state. Uh, and of course, the fact that Turkey dropped its uh, opposition to, to these two countries joining, that was really important as well and showed once again the, the unity of the union yeah. um, or of the alliance. And um, then third, we had you know rather concrete announcements regarding defense posture. Uh, things like you know increasing the number of, of quickly available NATO troops, increasing this number from 40,000 to 300,000. That's really important. Bolstering the defense in in the Eastern European states, most importantly, uh, the Baltics. Uh, That's that's rather concrete. I mean, this is going to happen now now soon and really shows that NATO is changing its defense posture. Uh, The the idea of of deterrence by by punishment, as we usually call it, is maybe changing a little bit towards deterrence by by denial or, or there's a, there's a different defense posture really now being developed. And all of this, of course, you know, is, is a result, a consequence of this uh, invasion by Russia and Ukraine. Yeah. And just to dig in a little to that last point there, what we're saying now is that we, we're not going to deter Russia by waiting for them to do something and mm-hmm. then sanction them. We're going to deter them by having sufficient forward deployed defensive assets that puts them off from doing these things. Yes, exactly. And I think it's important to mention that this is very much a consequence of not just the invasion and the war itself, but also how Russia has been invading Ukraine. And I'm 
talking in particular about these uh, terrible atrocities and war crimes that are being reported out of places like Bucha and elsewhere. Because yeah. indeed, the idea so far was more or less to say deterrence by punishment. So you have a small number of troops in let's say the Baltics, a thousand or so soldiers from different NATO nations on the borders uh, in, in each of these countries. And of course, you know, a thousand troops don't fight back the Russians. The idea here was to say that if there was an attack, everyone would immediately be involved and NATO would, would fight back, as you said. And yeah. let's say, you know, uh, re reconquer territory uh, um, occupied by Russia in in this scenario. And now, after you know, we've seen what it means to be occupied by Russia. Um, uh, NATO is saying, no, no, we can't do that. We need to put in more troops in these countries from from the very beginning, so that we can deny Russian troops uh, any kind of invasion and basically fight them back immediately and not even give them. Uh, anything. Um, so, so that's one of the ideas of, of bolstering the troops in in the Baltics. So there really is a change in in thinking, um, and all of all of these ideas have just become much more concrete, right? Because so far, yeah. all, all these ideas of deterrence, no one really thought it particularly likely that Russia might invade in the Baltics or in Eastern Europe. And while it's not exactly that people are saying this is going to happen tomorrow, it just has become so much more likely given given the situation in in Ukraine. And so, uh, yeah, there really is a change happening that's, that's quite uh, fundamental. Yeah, I, absolutely. You, you, you can no longer rest on the idea, oh, well, the Russians wouldn't go that far because mm -hmm. they've shown that there's almost nowhere they won't go. Um, in a way, though, one of the interesting things about this NATO summit is what it is not about. And this is, it's not about necessarily uh, direct support to Ukraine, which is happening more on a bilateral basis. Uh, in individual NATO members are supplying Ukraine with weapons and with training for those weapon systems and so on. But on the one hand, we see this perspective of NATO united, expanding, uh, putting a, a much more kind of meaningful defense posture. On the other hand, there continues this debate about the degree to which Europe is united in its approach to supporting Ukraine. One of the most important countries in this big question is Germany. Germany, of course, geographically much closer to Russia, economically exposed to Russia, both in terms of energy and in terms of its own export markets. Um, as somebody who is, you know, you're a German citizen yourself, but also somebody who looks at these issues as a sort of geopolitical uh, perspective, what's your take on whether or not the very striking stance of Chancellor Schultz in the early days and the talk of the Zeitenwender and so on, is that something that is going to be maintained, particularly as we go into what is going to be a hard winter with uh, crisis over energy supplies, food prices and all that goes with that? Mm -hmm. Yeah, you're asking the very important uh, question indeed. Maybe just one sentence, because you said that um, NATO isn't necessarily uh, supporting Ukraine, but it's individual NATO countries or European countries. I think that's correct to some part. So I think what NATO has been trying to do is to 
show solidarity with Ukraine um, and NATO countries are supporting Ukraine. But NATO as an organization is really walking a very thin line here because the one thing that everybody wants to avoid is having a war, a conflict between Russia and NATO because that really kind of sends you into a, a potential global conflict or let's say a conflict with global um, consequences. And that's why you know NATO as an, as an organization is showing solidarity, but, but it's the countries themselves that are trying to support um, Ukraine more more practically. But let's talk about Germany. Yes, I think, so first of all, before the war really started, we had these few weeks where, you know, the Americans were saying Russia is going to invade and a lot of experts were saying Russia is going to invade. And um, the Germans really didn't want to do too much um, uh, before. And there was a big discussion about delivering weapons and the government was against it, saying it would risk escalating the conflict, etc. And then on the 24th of uh, February, the invasion started and only um, Three days later, on the 27th, Olaf Scholz, the German chancellor, gave this speech in the German Bundestag, the German parliament, which was really quite exceptional. I mean, it was, I don't know, a half hour speech. And in this half hour, he just, you know, he decided so many things that people like myself had been discussing for, I want to say, decades. Um, you know, Germany staying in NATO's nuclear sharing, so continuing uh, having American nuclear weapons on its soil and, and potentially transporting those into, into conflict if needed. Um, Germany buying F-35 airplanes, uh, Germany buying armed drones, Germany indeed delivering weapons uh, to Ukraine, even though Ukraine is a country in conflict. And that was usually a red line for Germany that it wouldn't deliver weapons into a country that is uh, in, in an act of conflict. Germany spending 100 billion euro on its defense. Germany reaching the 2% NATO goal. Like all of these things had been things that, you know, I had been discussing over and over and again over the last years and, and decades. And he just went and said, yes, we're doing this, 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 and this check. Um, so that was the 27th of February. So quite, quite impressive. Um, and since then, yeah, a, a few things really have happened. I mean, the 100 billion uh, new financing for the Bundeswehr has indeed passed parliament. It needed parliamentary support. So that's happening. So that's real money that is going to be spent. Um, there have been acquisition decisions that won't be taken back. So there are certainly changes that, that are happening and will happen no matter what. And weapons have been delivered to, to Ukraine. All that being said, Germany really is a country that um, ha has a difficult relationship to all things military. I think what's happening right now is that the German government, which at incidentally at the moment is also made up by, you know, kind of center-left parties, so it's even harder for them, center-left and green parties, and the government and the population has to relearn a certain logic of military power that we were deeply uncomfortable with um, and that we didn't need to think about over the last few decades. And so I think there's a real change happening here at the moment. Whether it will last and what it will mean going forward, I find incredibly difficult to tell because on the one hand, as I was pointing out, yes, there are some fundamental long-term changes that are happening. The money is being spent. But will this really mean that Germany is changing its approach to the armed forces and to military power? I'm not so sure. And honestly, only time will tell. There's, there's only so much to speculate about. Yeah. I mean, obviously, the, the change, as you described, that the policy changes are epic, but the cultural change is something which, which no one can expect that to happen overnight. But I also wonder whether, 
inevitably, given German's his, Germany's history, there are some difficult cultural questions. Um, I know that, for example, there's been on several occasions, uh, there's been issues to do with far right groups within the German military. So I think, you know, uh, German citizens have a right to be slightly uh, awkward about their relationship with the military, given all those factors. Oh, Absolutely. I mean, I would I wouldn't necessarily emphasize um, the the elements of, of far right um, people in in the German military. There have been these instances, um, but uh, yeah, I, I wouldn't overemphasize this. But I think historical um, experiences is 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 really are really important here, and I think it's it's basically two moments in time that are important to underline. The first, of course, is. World War II and the end of World War II. I mean, World War II really left Germany as a nation um, as seeing the military as something evil. And it kind of uh, created this idea in the German society that, you know, maybe we shouldn't have armed forces because clearly we're not doing good things with them. Um, yeah. So, by the way, the Bundeswehr, the German armed forces, were were founded, were established in 1955, so 10 years after World War World War II. Um, so for 10 years, Germany didn't have armed forces at all, and they were only established so quickly after the Second World War uh, because we were already in the Cold War and Germany was kind of in the midst of it and, and needed armed forces. So yeah. there's this historical legacy. And then there's also... The whole time of uh, after 1989, after 1990, so after the the Berlin Wall fell and Germany reunited, um, and after this th these years, we really had several decades during which Germans didn't need to think about military and military power because on the one hand we were under the very nice uh, nuclear umbrella of the United States and NATO and didn't really have to think about our own defense and also this was a time that was profoundly calm geopolitically speaking right I mean now after 89 you had the the end of this geopolitical confrontation between east and west or between the west and the Soviet Union there was really this idea of an end of history um, in the sense that one didn't need to think about military power as part of geopolitical power anymore there was this belief that everything would be uh, solved via international organizations and international law and trade would become so much more important and economic relations rather than than military power and Germans loved that idea and really really went all in um, and and benefited greatly from it in the in the decades following eighty nine and it's only now I mean I would say since 2008 and 2014 with the first invasions of Russia, but also especially now that we are realizing that, well, history hasn't ended and, and military power remains an important instrument or element of geopolitical power. And, and that's an uncomfortable situation. I mean, let's be honest. It's not, it, no one is welcoming this. We all would have loved to live in a world where, where all of this didn't play a role anymore, but that's not the world we live in. And so um, that's, that's currently one of these, basically a cultural change that, needs to take place in Germany and to some extent is taking place. Hi, I'm Katie Riley. On the slow newscast from Tortoise, Donald Trump became the first former U.S. president in history to face a criminal trial. The defendant repeatedly made false statements on New York business records. This is not a trial. This is not a, an act of criminality. We cannot and will not normalize serious criminal conduct. This is the story of his first week in court, told through the transcripts. Listen now to the Slow Newscast wherever you get your podcasts.
Ulrika, uh, there's a certain amount of debate here in the UK, which my own view is that it's overdone on the degree to which France and Germany might have a role in kind of nudging Ukraine to some kind of settlement with Russia. And, and clearly, it's easy to imagine how that the pressure on that might grow if the economic crisis in, in Europe continues to get worse. Um, what, what's your view on that? Is, is that something that has been overplayed in, in the British media for certain kind of obvious reasons to do with our own sort of self-perception vis-a-vis Europe? Or is that a real risk? Um, there's actually some interesting polling on this um, where we at ECFR did polling in different European member states and basically identified two different camps in European populations. One is the peace camp and the other is the justice camp, meaning that the peace camp is those people that basically say we need to end this war as soon as possible. And that's the most important thing. And the other side says, no, Russia needs to lose or needs to be punished or Ukraine needs to win. And that could be even yeah. mean a, a longer war, but that that would be more just. And I think it is correct that in a number of countries, including uh, Germany, by the way, especially also Italy, um, and I think also France, there are more voices calling for an end to this war than necessarily saying you know, Russia needs to needs to lose and Ukraine needs to win. But this is really, really difficult because, you know, how how can you end this war today in, in a way that is not completely unjust and unacceptable for Ukraine? I don't think that German and French politicians really are trying to push Ukraine in this direction. I think they're just really walk, trying to walk a really thin line in that we don't want to see a, a, a very long protracted war that, that that lasts years and completely destabilizes Ukraine and, and causes ever more suffering. No one wants that, um, understandably, yeah. but but I, I can't quite see how, how anyone can really negotiate um, any kind of peace deal at the moment because, I mean, this is a war in which the, the two parties are Russia and Ukraine, so it's, it's for them to decide. Russia can end this war tomorrow, um, and it doesn't want to, and and that's the situation where where we're at. You mentioned earlier that NATO has to walk a thin line, and you could argue that NATO failed in its duty. It got distracted by overseas operations, particularly in Afghanistan, and it ignored the problem on its doorstep: Russia becoming emboldened both militarily and economically, and eventually to the point of the invasion of Ukraine. So. Has NATO got it right now in terms of restating its basic aims this week? That is a very big question. Um, and, and this is the, the tricky thing with these military alliances. You want to be strong and appear strong and kind of state your aims clearly, but you also need a little bit of, sometimes you need a little bit of ambiguity or also you don't want to come out too strong either because that may play into the hands of uh, Putin and the whole narrative that, you know, Russia is already at war with, with NATO. So um, I don't, I don't think that there's a, there's a right answer or a perfect answer, or at least I don't, I don't have it as to how exactly NATO should, should position itself. I think the language out of the Madrid communique was very clear. Um, but of, of course, th this, this kind of nuclear dimension and the 
the possibility that this could that this could escalate into a nuclear confrontation is always on on everybody's mind and on the one hand it has to be because it's just the reality on the other hand we can't also just kind of get get scared away by this fact because if if and we we've heard people making this argument if you basically say well Russia is a nuclear power so we absolutely should not fight them um, this is really dangerous because this just means that anyone with nuclear weapons can do whatever the hell they want um, because they become basically untouchable. And, and you know, that's not a situation in a world we want to live in. Also, it kind of sounds like great PR for nuclear weapons and will make other countries want them because, you know, countries like Iran and others will see um, how, how this plays out. Great, if I have a nuclear weapon, I become basically untouchable. That's not the situation or the impression that we want to create. But then again, yeah, there, there is an element of you need to be more careful with with countries that have nuclear weapons. So, um, I, I think I think NATO is 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 really trying to find this this midway, the kind of sweet spot um, between appearing too aggressive and and escalating the war, while at the same time being very clear as to um, wh where they stand and. Uh, my my sense is that the Madrid summit actually did this rather well, but this is something that they have to have to do daily, and and you know every every day you have kind of has to have to readjust how you how you confront uh, Russia, and this is just very difficult. So I'm afraid I can't really give you a great um, answer as to how to do this better, but I think that's certainly on the mind of Jens Stoltenberg, the NATO General Secretary, and everybody else every day and and every minute. Finally, Ulrika, I wanted to return to your technical area of expertise in terms of future warfare technology, particularly drones, AI, all of that. We've seen the use of drones in the Ukraine conflict, um, but also thinking about Germany with this massive expansion of its military budget, and Germany is clearly a country of, of great sort of technological and engineering capability. Are we going to see Germany become a world leader in uh, defense technology, weapons technology, pioneering uh, new types of warfare? We won't be seeing that. <laughs> that would be my, <laughs> That's a clear my, answer. <laughs> uh, yeah, my prediction. And the, the reason is mainly the following. Um, you are right to say that 100 billion euros spent on the military sounds like a lot. And I mean, yes, it is a lot. However, these 100 billion are there to close a gap and to fill a hole, but it doesn't mean that we're necessarily doing so much more on, on top and we're going to become this leader in, in military uh, technology. I don't, I don't think that that's, that that's uh, likely to happen. Um, that being said, yes, of course, I mean, there are some high-tech things that are being, being bought. Um, we do have future developments. I mean, maybe let me highlight one. There's a French, German, Spanish uh, future combat aircraft systems system being developed uh, the fcas it's called or scuff in french and this is really supposed to be this high-tech aircraft plus combat cloud uh, accompanied by uh, autonomous drone swarms so yes this of course is very much a future tech we're talking by the way 2040 2045 so this isn't exactly for tomorrow so so this is happening but um basically the point i'm trying to make is that this this money also is just very much needed to 
to just make sure that Bundeswehr soldiers are equipped properly, that we have what we what we need. Um, so I, I we shouldn't we shouldn't overemphasize or over um, interpret uh, either what can be done with, with with this money. Right. And then, sorry, I said final, but this is my final question on this area. What what do you think? Uh, Germany traditionally has been relatively cautious on the issue of the EU developing its kind of military uh, capabilities uh, in the context, clearly, of of a wider European uh, defence alliance, NATO. Uh, Is that going to change now? So Germany is interesting in that regard, in that actually Germany has been quite supportive, rhetorically, of EU efforts to... Uh, increase its defense capabilities. I um, sometimes joke that this is also because if you do it at the EU level, you don't need to do it at the national level. So Germans are quite quite happy with this. Um, and also, you know, when, when Germans think about European defense, they really emphasize the European part. So this is very much about creating unity and strengthening the European Union. And they don't necessarily think that much about the defense part. Um, when the French think about European defense, they very much think about the defense part and not so much about the, the European part. So um, so it's, it's, it's quite interesting because, yeah, rhetorically, Germany has been quite supportive of, of EU defense efforts. But, but then, um, as you rightly pointed out, it is also wary of going too far on the EU side and, and alienating uh, NATO in while while doing that, right? Um, France is much more comfortable saying, you know, we need European um, sovereignty and we need to be able to do things without the the United States, and so therefore probably outside the NATO context. And for Germany, that's that's not something that that we like to do. So they're kind of trying to find a midway between saying, on the one hand, yes, the EU should become a stronger actor and it's important that the European countries do something here, but but this will always be the European pillar of NATO. We hope you find these war bulletins valuable amongst the huge amount of information out there. So don't forget to subscribe and help spread the word by rating us five stars on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or any other app that has ratings. And if you really like the show, you can support us on the crowdfunding app Patreon. You'll get the shows early, ad-free, and help shape future episodes, all from as little as £3 per month. Just search Patreon Doomsday Watch or follow the link in the show notes. Thanks for listening. We'll see you next time.